you please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Galatians? Galatians chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 10 through 14. Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. The word of the Lord reads, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not a faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the spirit through faith. Pray with me, please. Father, we need your help this morning, that we need your spirit to open our eyes and our heart to your word. I pray, God, that you would move upon our hearts, upon our soul, upon every single soul in this room, that you would have your way, that you would accomplish your purposes through your word, through the power of your spirit. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If I start out with playing a a word game with you briefly, I want to ask you this. If I say a word, what image comes to your mind as soon as I say it? Quicksand. Quicksand. What do you think about when you think of quicksand? Quicksand. Sinking. You know, I'm sure you've seen it on TV, cartoons, movies. I, when I was a kid, I would, the first time I remember encountering what quicksand was, I was kind of frightened. Like, it's no longer about monsters under the bed or in the closet or the dark, but now I can go outside and, and sink in the sand. <laughs> and you, you see the person sinking all the way and, and suffocating, and it's that image of that person trying to get out and just sinking deeper and deeper and deeper into the quicksand. I just remember thinking how, Kind of traumatizing that was to watch as a kid. <laughs> you see someone lose their breath and, and suffocate all the way to the bottom. Now, I researched this now as an adult, and most likely when someone encounters quicksand, they don't fall all the way to the bottom and sink. You normally go to about your waist level, but you can go all the way down in some cases and, and sink. But there are other concerns other than just sinking, such as you can lose blood circulation, mess up your nervous system. You could suffer other ligament, ligament injuries and, and, and things of that sort. But nevertheless, I think we all know is that when you're encountering quicksand, you see even in the movies or pictures or cartoons, what does a person do that automatically causes them to sink down further? They, they keep trying to get up, right? You notice that they're in the sand and they're stuck. And so their first inclination is, well, I'm stuck. So let me fight my way out. And they get deeper. They keep fighting and they get deeper. And the, the, the whole idea is that even the more you struggle, which is true with quicksand, the more you struggle, the more effort you put in, the, the, the more kind of uh, all you can exertion, whatever you do, it, it causes you to sink deeper and deeper and deeper. There's nothing the person can do that they're stuck there. Now, this simple illustration can teach us a greater reality that the burden of the law ultimately is too heavy for any person to bear. That the burden of the law is too heavy for any person to bear. In fact, the more you try to comply and to obey the law, the more you find out, wow, I'm deeper in this. And I'm, I'm, I'm disobeying here. That, that, oh, it's even at the heart level now. This is, this is way, way more than I anticipated I can even do or think I can do. That the law is a burden. It brings that burden. Now, last week we learned that this, the positive truth that one is justified by faith, if you remember and call from verses one through nine, the, the truth that one is justified, declared righteous before God by their faith. And as scripture affirms, we know this, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That, that is our mantra. That is the truth. And we saw how Paul rightly articulated that truth and guarded and defended that truth. But in this passage, we see now that Paul is continuing his argument by addressing where salvation is not found. That salvation, this is where salvation is not found. We know salvation is by faith in Christ 
by grace. But now here we're going to see where salvation is not found, and that's the law. Now, Paul, I love how Paul always articulates his, his writings, even other books, Romans, and here and elsewhere. Whenever he's making a strong argument, you notice here that Paul is already anticipating the objections of his opponents as he's writing. He's making a strong statement, and he's already thinking of his readers. What, what, what would someone think if they were to read this statement? Well, you know what? Let me already address this. <laughs> and he's going smoothly in his argument as, 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 as a supreme lawyer, just striking down any other potential objection that would come up, and he strikes it down. And he does that here. He anticipates the injection, the objection, and he dismantles it. And in this passage, in this kind of context, the, the possible objection may be, you're saying here that, we're justified by faith, as he, he exemplified with Abraham, we saw, that even Abraham, the father in the faith, he was justified, declared righteous before God because of his faith. One possible objection may be, well, what was the purpose of the law that God gave? I mean, this, this, this law is essential part of our life. What, what does the purpose of this law do? What is its purpose? And we'll get to it. But the basic meaning he's getting at is that you can strive all you want. But the way to righteousness is not a staircase of your own striving. And he ultimately gets the point that obedience to the law cannot save you. Obedience to the law cannot save you. And in fact, in Galatians 3, verses 10 through 14, we just read, it presents four reasons that the law cannot save you. Four reasons that the law cannot save you so that your trust may be in Christ's saving work alone. So what he's getting at here is he approaches this, this argument now. He's anticipating the objection. Well, what about the law? What does it serve? What is its purpose? And here we're going to see, he's going to say, even the law, which you're thinking you're trying to uphold to, it cannot save you by your obedience. He gives us four reasons. Let's, let's look at this first reason. First reason is that the law demands your perfection. The law demands your perfection in verse 10. As he begins his argument, the very first word indicates here, if you notice the very first word, for, it indicates this this is not just independent of what he's been talking about previously. He's logically building the bridge for us. That based upon what he said, that, 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 that righteousness is through faith in Christ alone, now he gives us this key word, for. And what he's basically arguing over these next several verses is that if you're really going to rely upon your own performance under the law, If this is really what you want to do, if you want to adhere to the law, let me show you what kind of burden you're placing yourself under. If you really want to live by the law, let me show you what that looks like. Because the first thing you got to learn here is that the very law you're trying to adhere to demands perfection. Perfection. Verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. So first of all, he kind of gives us two kind of general categories. As many as are under the works of the law are under a curse. So really, in a sense, these two categories are one and the same. If you're under the works of the law, you are under a curse. And we can't simply, we can't just oversimplify his argument here and assume that when he's saying here the works of the law, he's just, he's just merely referring to the Old Testament or Mosaic law. He's not just saying if you're under the Mosaic law, you're under a curse so to, in, in one way. But look how he phrases it. Because in this four verses or five verses we looked at this morning, Paul uses the word law at least five times. But in these five times, law doesn't always mean just one monolithic uniform definition. Because he says works of the law in verse 10 we just read. Later on, he says book of the law. In verse 11, justified by the law by itself. And you see just law, works of the law, book of the law. There's different nuances of what he's getting at here. So it's important for us to understand is what is he meaning by, what is he saying when he uses this word law and how is he using it here? Now, if he says in verse 10, back in verse 10, we just read that those who are under the works of the law are under curse, these works of the law, in other words, he's saying that those who are under are trying to be justified by working under the law. In other words, you're trying to earn your justification by working and being obedient to the law. You're under a curse. So those who are seeking to be justified by the works of the law are under curse. So those who are working there are under the same curse. They're one in the same. 
So if you're trying to be justified before God, if you want to be declared righteous, which is the supreme question, the million-dollar question, how can I be declared righteous? He's saying here, if you're under the works of the law trying to earn it, guess what the outcome is? It's a curse. Now let's step back and think about We know the context a little bit. We discussed it last week. But, but who do you think is at the forefront of Paul's mind when he's saying, if you want to be under the works of the law, if you are under the works of the law, you're under a curse. Who do you think is at the forefront of Paul's mind? Those Judaizers who were bringing that false teaching, right? Especially in this context we discussed, that, that they were seeking to say that if you want to be saved, hey, Gentiles, you want to come to the faith? You want to adhere to our father Abraham? You got to be circumcised like Abraham. You got to conform to our Mosaic law. You got to follow these works of the law that are written here in scripture. If you want to be saved, it's Christ plus these things. So when Paul is saying here, if you want to be justified by the works of these law, automatically you're going to be under a curse. But why? If you keep going. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So immediately, he's quoting here, Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. If you remember the context, is toward the end of Deuteronomy. It's Moses is speaking to the second gener- generation of the Israelites, those who were there ready to go into the promised land. And, and Moses is giving his last hurrah speech. These are all the statutes. These are the commands you must follow when you, when you head into the land. This is what you are to do. And he gives them the option, basically saying at that point, is that when you get and cross the Jordan, I want you to have set, set half the people here on this, on this mountain, Ebal, and this half, the other half of people on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. And he's basically saying that the picture here, when you get there, these people on Mount Ebal, they're going to represent the curses. So when you get to the land, if you don't obey, if you disobey, these are the curses that will fall upon you. And if you do obey, these are the blessings that will fall upon you. And so Paul now is alluding back to that circumstance when Israel or Moses is speaking to Israel and he's saying there at the end of verse 10 that we just read, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. So what Paul is doing here, because you'll notice in the next several verses, this is not the only Old Testament verse that he speaks of. He's going to bring actually four additional or three additional Old Testament references from different places of the law. So what is Paul doing here? It's important for us to understand when we're approaching texts like these, especially in this context, we have so many Old Testament references one after the other. What is Paul doing here? Because he's really using them as, as an ad- evidence, a defense. They're almost like big pearls he's have here. Here's one pearl, and here's another pearl, and here's another pearl. Here's my point, so here's a pearl to support that. What we want to do is when we see stuff like that is what is the string that holds this pearl together? What's the pearl necklace he, he's building here? And I think that's very important because the very first thing he's saying here with this, that if you want to put yourself under the works of the law by seeking to be justified before God, by by earning and achieving it, you're going to be under a curse. Why? Because even going back, Moses, speaking of the curses that will fall upon you, if you do not obey or abide, in other words, keep, continually keep all, notice all the things written in the book of the law to perform them, all of them. So here's what Moses said. Everyone, right? You are to keep everyone. This is all people. Make sure you abide continually, always abiding, always being obedient to everything in the book of the law to obey them. That this is, this is the precursor that they were given here. That this is what you are to do. If you are to, if you want to be blessed, if you want to avoid the cursing, here, you need to obey everything. That obedience here is essential to always abide by everything in this law. So anyone seeking to be justified before God by law keeping, no no matter how decent of a person you are, you're placing yourself under a curse because ultimately you're setting yourself up to the same standard that the law requires for you. And that is absolute perfection. So what Paul is doing here by alluding to this chapter or this verse, he's showing them that even those who are trying to justify others by, by, by adhering to circumcision, the same law you're pulling from, pulling from, it doesn't just require circumcision to be saved. It's not just requiring this simple thing. That's not, you're missing the point of what the law was doing. That even Israel was called to obey God in faith, to trust God in faith, and the expression of their faith was the obedience of that law. 
but you're working it backwards. So if you're trying to put yourself to the law, that law says you are to be perfect. You're to be righteous and on all points, all the time. That's the standard you're putting yourself under. And so this law can't save you because it demands your perfection. And so, of course, in our day, it's not just someone seeking to be justified through circumcision, but, but someone who even seeks to be justified or considered decent by, I got baptized. I attend church regularly. I'm in my Bible study. I do these, these works. I'm, I'm a decent person. I've earned some sort of credibility because of what I've done. That this is not just about circumcision, so to speak, but it's about any kind of work that you or I could bring to the table that says, let me achieve my justification before God. But Paul here says in verse 10 that it is impossible because the law demands perfection and who doesn't is cursed. It's cursed. It's not just a bewitching kind of cursing, but this is divine judgment from God that if you can't keep this, that you are under divine judgment. So why can't the law save? Because it demands that everyone, it demands your perfect perfection on all points. That's why James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the law, right? And yet who stumbles in one point of the law becomes guilty of what? Of all, right? I mean, you can't say you keep the law. If you stumble at one point of the law, you're guilty of it all. If you, if you want to be justified, if you're thinking to be justified by that law, you got to keep all points of the law. That, that even in one single jot or tittle that you, you fall short of, guilty of it all. So if you want to live by the law, the very law that you're seeking to live by, it demands your obedience. It's impossible. First reason demands your obedience, but second reason, the law deems you guilty. In verses 11 through 12, that the law deems you guilty. And this is seen quite, quite plainly as Paul says in verse 11, that now that no one is justified by the law before, sorry, ju- no one is justified by the law before God is evident for the righteous man shall live by faith. Notice there, it's a small word, but he says it's evident that it's, it's not up for debate that we plainly see in scripture. He's basically saying, therefore, based on all these things that no one is justified before the, before God by the law. It, it's evident. It's plain. It's obvious because the law that we know it demands our perfection. So no one is justified. Not one person he's emphasizing. No one. And here, it's not just the works of the law he's saying here. No one is justified by the works of the law. He's saying, no, by the law itself, no one is justified. Now, I think it's quite interesting here that the Old Testament verses he uses here to justify this assertion, assertion it takes us back to Habakkuk chapter 2. Because he quotes here, the righteous man shall live by faith in verse 11. The righteous man shall live by faith. Why would he connect the idea that no one is going to be justified by the law? It's evident with the righteous man shall live by faith. What connection is he building there? If you recall the context of Habakkuk chapter 2, that what, what's happening at that point is that God is, is bringing his judgment upon Judah for their disobedience. And if you recall, how is God bringing that judgment toward them? The Chaldeans, Babylonian Empire, they're coming, they're going to wipe out Judah. Now Habakkuk is seeing this and he's saying, wait a minute, God, I, I don't understand this. You're a holy God, you're a righteous God, and yes, we've been disobedient, but you're using an even more wicked nation to wipe us out. Like, I'm, I'm just thinking, I'm not Habakkuk, but like, why don't you wipe them out first? <laughs> they come over here. But no, but God, he, he was taking an even more wicked nation to wipe out Judah because they're disobedience. And in this whole vision that Habakkuk has, he's so con- perplexed, he's confused. God, what are you doing? And how God responds to Habakkuk's difficulty there. He compares the pride of these Gentile nations, these pagan nations, but he says, the righteous man will live by faith. And he basically gets to the point that, you know what? I'm going to judge Babylon too. But right now I'm judging Judah and that's my business. But the righteous man, even though you see this, this horrible destruction coming, the one who's righteous will live by faith. They will live by trusting my word and my promises. 
What's even more interesting here is that even if you look at Habakkuk, he says the righteous man will live by faith. This is not just speaking of just this one justifying act of faith, but this is really connecting Habakkuk in his mind. He's not denoting or making any distinction between faith and and faithfulness, but really the one who is of faith will live by that faith. And that Paul uses that same verse in this context in Galatians to say that the one, you'll never be justified by the law because the law even there says that the one who's righteous doesn't live by his works, but he lives by faith. And that faith is not independent of a life of faithfulness. That even Habakkuk, going back to the law, also proves this. That this law deems you guilty because no one in the times of that law was living by their works. They were living by their faith. So even when they saw destruction coming upon, even the context of suffering in Habakkuk, this one who is suffering, the one who is confused at what's going on around him, the one who does not understand the providence of God, even though he believes it, but he does not understand it, that one is living by the promises of God. And so Paul is pointing back to that picture of faithfulness to show even there, that person was living by his faith. He believed God, just like Abraham believed God. The law deems you guilty. That the posture of Habakkuk and all others who call upon the Lord must assume that their posture is of faith. And this is faith in the God who reveals and promises will sustain Habakkuk and demonstrate that he is the righteous, that he is righteous in the Lord's sight. Even more, I think it's quite interesting here that he, he breaks the thought here. And it takes us back to the, the, the central truth here. That this, this life of faith connecting from Abraham all the way through to Habakkuk. That it was never pleasing, God, no, no one was ever pleased before in God's sight apart from their faith in him. And I think it's also interesting that Paul connects the same idea of faithfulness because once you get to the end of Galatians, we won't, but if you, once you read to the end of Galatians, after giving this solid defense of justification by faith, that if you want to be righteous, you got to believe in Christ alone, that Christ alone is your sufficient sacrifice. Your works mean nothing to bring yourself into his pleasing sight. It's only your faith in Christ. And yet, what does Paul do by the end of Galatians? Because you believe, now love one another. Walk by the Spirit. That he, Paul himself, is not disconnecting faith from faithfulness. That because of who you are in Christ, now love one another. Walk by the Spirit because you're free. The law can't provide us with the justification that we're seeking to get by own works. So not only do we see here the righteous live by faith, but look at verse 12 how he's contrasting faith with the law. Now he's saying here is that and it, it, essentially that, that obviously you can't be justified by the works of the law because the law is opposite from faith. It's not, they're not one of the same. Verse 12 says that, however, the law is not a faith. On the contrary, he who practices them should, shall live by them. The law is not a faith. That he's quoting here now Leviticus chapter 8, verse 15, sorry, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. And here, God is speaking to his people here, right before he gives them specific stipulations about immorality and how to live their life. God is saying to them that you are the righteous man, sorry, that he who practices them shall live by them. Then in Leviticus 18, God is saying that your people, my people, they shall live by these laws. That the one who practices them, this ongoing, ongoing adherence to them shall be obedient and live by them. But it's interesting, in, in Leviticus 18, before God gives that stipulation, before he gives that truth, he says, I think it's three, four times, just in those five verses, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. That this commandment given to them, it was not given to them in order so that they can live by works of the law. Like that wasn't the idea. It was given to them girded with the fact that I am the Lord Yahweh, your God. I am your covenant God. I am your covenant keeping God. That those stipulations given to them was not given to them so that they can live by their works, but rather understand I am Yahweh. And if you understood I'm not just God, but I am Yahweh, the covenant God, your faithful God. God who has loved you, if you understood that in faith, then you could live these out. And so Paul's coming here and saying, no, the law is not a faith. These aren't the same thing. They're, they're, they're mutually, they're not mutually exclusive. They are mutually exclusive, excuse me. They're mutually exclusive. They're not one and the same. 
that saving faith isn't in the law. It's in the God who provides the law. So he's making this argument here that this law cannot save you. This law is hopeless. It cannot provide you with any stance of righteousness. It considers you guilty. I mean, Matthew 5, 48, when Jesus is on the Sermon on the Mount, right, he's talking about how this law is not just about what you're doing, but what's in your heart. That this is, this is the nature of the real true saint of the kingdom. And ultimately he says in 548 that you are to be perfect because your father in heaven is perfect. It's perfection. And this perfection you can never achieve. Ultimately, what this law does is it points out how you are guilty, that you can't be justified in it. It's almost like you've seen those TV shows where the detective catches like a criminal. He's like a small-time criminal. He wasn't like the big criminal, right? He gets the small one, maybe the sidekick or whatever, and he's, he's interviewing that criminal in, in the interrogation room. And what does he do to, in order so he can kind of get more information and get really the big, big criminal? He starts scaring him, throws a book at him, like, you know what? You did this, section 8.5, you did this, section 14.6, and you did this. This law, this law, like, I didn't even heard that was a law. Like, you're wearing blue on a Thursday, you did that, you did that four times. And, like, all these other laws he throws at the small time, he's like, that'll get you at least 14 years in the penitentiary, maybe, possibly death, I don't know. And and he scares the the small time criminal, he's like, what does he do now? He's like, okay, I'll speak. But really, in, in the small sense, he, he's throwing out all these different laws that he didn't even know existed. I mean, there's so many laws that you don't, you, you'll break not even knowing. Just walk out the door, you open your eyes and breathe, you probably broke the law. Right? I mean, the, the whole standard he's kind of building here is the, is the whole case is that this law is so great and so lofty because it's a reflection of God's perfection. It's a reflection of God's attribute. And if that's the case, it demands perfection. And you cannot keep it because you violate it on levels that you don't even know were there. And so the righteous man in that day didn't even live by that. They lived by faith in the God who justifies. And so he who practices them shall live by them, he says. That's, what, that's really what the law is. It says you must live by them perfectly with perfection. But we can't be confused here. Let's not be led astray. The law in itself is good. The law is good. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with the lawbreaker. <laughs> The law is good, but it was never designed to justify a person. That obedience, our our works were never designed to contribute anything toward our standing with God. That God alone justifies the sinner by his own work. That the law has always been an expression of one's faith. So the reason why even Israel was called to be obedient is because it was an expression that they believed in the God who gave them the law. I mean, you think about David and he's, as he's writing and, and speaking about the law himself. And the Psalms all over, the psalmist explains, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And I'm just thinking, he's probably meditating on Genesis through Deuteronomy. Maybe he's in Numbers and he's, he's saying this about the law. <laughs> I mean, he's on this generation and this generation and this generation. Oh, how I love your law. But he's not lying. He believes it. Because he's saying here, the law, it shows me the beauty and the perfection of God. It shows me how how, all my flaws and all my imperfections and how I've violated this holy God in and now. But it shows me how this same God has loved me in his own saving work. Oh, how I love the law. That we can't point the, the blame at the law like, oh, this is your fault. But rather, the law is a mirror that says, this is what's wrong with me. By trusting in any ability to be justified before God, based upon our obedience, it automatically renders us guilty. We're unable to. So he contrasts the law with faith. He said, this law is not of faith, and no one will be justified by keeping it. That you can't be justified by keeping it, I can't be justified it. So Paul says later in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. That no one will. It's important. We must understand the weight of this burden before we move on because he's building this argument here and we have to see the weight of the burden here that Paul is establishing here. That that no one can keep the works of the law. It demands your perfection. 
It demands your utter complete obedience to it. You can't break it at one, one sort, at one point, and at all, it demands everything. I mean, believer in Christ, this was the weight that you once sought to carry. This was the weight that you, when, when you realize, well, I can't keep this law, that I am imperfect, I am, I am sinful, I am a wretch, I am unable to please God in and of my own efforts. Believer, that's what you saw when God opened your eyes to see the beauty and the wonder of his own splendor. You saw your filth. You saw your garments. You saw how unworthy you were. You saw the weight of your sin crushing you. You saw the consequences of your sin in your life. You saw how it just wrecked your mind, wrecked your heart your life. You saw all of that when he saved you. You know the weight of this burden that you can't carry. There's also reality, my friends, that there are some even deceived believers, deceived believers who just like the Judaizers, not just seeking to be justified by some sort of holy ritual, but deceived believers who believe they're saved, but yet their confidence is in something that they've done or accomplished. That people who believe that, you know what? I think of Matthew 7, one of the scariest passages in scriptures. Like, Lord, did I not do this? Wait, did I not do this? Did I not do all these things? But even any work that you seek, any confidence that you have, if it's in anything other than what God has ordained for the path of salvation, then it leaves you hopeless. And maybe if there are even some of those who don't know the Lord, who are unsaved in this room, I hope that you do feel the weight of the sin now. You must feel this. And it's not just to point fingers, because let me tell you, if we want to talk about the chief of sinners, you're looking at him. But I'm just saying, for anyone, you must feel the weight of your own sin. If you do not know the Lord and the saving of your sins, that you must be grieved, be broken about how wretched and how sinful that our sin is before a holy God. That is the purpose. It shows us as a ruler does, straight and narrow. It shows how crooked we are. That you must feel the weight of this sin now. But hear this, you feel that weight, but don't keep it on your shoulders. Believers, we know this weight we once bear, but where's this hope found? Where's this hope found? Third reason, third reason law cannot save you is be Christ became your curse. Christ became your curse. If all are under the curse of the law, where is our hope? Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Beautiful words. Beautiful words. What is the hope here? That this standard of perfection of this law, this perfect law which demands your perfect obedience, which you can never perfectly do, what is the hope for a wretched sinner like us? Christ redeemed you. Christ redeemed you. It's the idea of redemption or redeeming. It's the same word used in buying a slave's freedom. A slave who was enslaved to their own sins and their own passions, enslaved to their own way of life. They can never buy their freedom. They're constantly reminded of the, the chains bogged down upon them. If you think of the Christmas carol, you think of Marley in the very beginning when he comes to Scrooge and his weights and his chains. So often you see in, in movies there, he's kind of so lighthearted. But if you really read the actual script of Marley, man, those chains are upon him. And he is regretting every decision he ever made. He's regretting all those thoughts, all the bad deeds of greed, of his own pride. He's bearing the chains on him. And he's talking to Scrooge, you got to turn from your way because Marley knows it's too late. He knows he can't take his chains off. He is stuck that way. But believer, when Christ says that Christ redeemed, he took off those chains. That he, he freed. He redeemed. He bought the redemption. He paid the price you and I can never pay. That he and he alone bought the redemption. But how did he redeem us exactly? How did he redeem us? Not just forgiving for the sake of being nice because God is love and so he just forgets about our sins. That's not what he did. That's not what he says. That would, that would be unjust actually. 
but he redeemed us by paying the price on our behalf. That he redeemed us by becoming a curse for us. That he became a curse for us. That the very divine curse, the divine judgment of God, he bore. You think of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. He didn't, he didn't redeem us just with gold and silver, precious things, but he redeemed us with his precious blood. As of a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. Isaiah 53, verse 6, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us to fall on him. That Christ was crushed for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, but by his stripes we are healed. That when he hung on the tree, he was cursed, bearing our sin. That he was cursed, the Father's wrath fully being poured upon him. So when Christ cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the cry, believer, you will never have to cry. That you will never have to cry, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Christ cried that cry on your behalf. That he bore the curse, the judgment of God we will never have to face, believer. And I love this last Old Testament quotation. It provides us with some significance of really what Paul is getting at here. Because he says right after that in verse 12, excuse me, verse 13, that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 22, excuse me, 21, verse 23. If you look at it, in that context there, the law is given to how, how should someone treat someone who who broke the law, and not only just broke any law, but really broke a law, a serious law that is worthy of death. Chapter 21, verse 22 of Deuteronomy says, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, he is to be put to death and you hang him on a tree. His corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gave you as an inheritance. If you notice here that the curse in this, in this passage or the, the crucifixion or if you're nailing to the cross or upheling someone on a tree, the curse there was not, or the, 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 the nailing to the tree, I should say, was not the mode of his death. You catch that? That the, the, when, when someone was, was guilty of an offense worthy of death, they weren't killed by being hung to a tree. They were already killed. And after they were killed, they hung him on a tree because that was a sign that he was cursed. So the mode of death was not just by hanging on a tree. The, that, that just displayed how wicked that person was because they de- defied such a heinous law of God. They defamed God's name and therefore everyone shall see, wow, this person was cursed of God. So he was put to death. Because crucifixion didn't come by till centuries later by, by, by Rome. They designed the idea of crucifixion. But in Deuteronomy, in ancient Judaism, a criminal who was executed usually by stoning was then tied to a post, a type of tree. So his body would hang until sunset as a visible representation of rejection by God. And this person here, he didn't come cursed by hanging on a tree. He was cursed, so he was hung on a tree. You notice that he, he, he was cursed, so he was hung on a tree. So Paul's not using this reference here to say, uh, originally, when he's pointing this, he's not saying that Moses was talking about Christ in this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 21. He's not saying that. What Paul is using, he's using this as an illustration, the fact that even someone in the Old Testament, when they committed a heinous crime, they were considered accursed by God. But the significance for us on this side of the cross is that when Christ hung on a tree, he hung on a tree because he was cursed of God bearing the sin of mankind. That Jesus didn't become a curse because he was crucified. He was crucified because he was cursed and taking our sin upon himself. And I just think about it, that if in the sight of God, the hanging of a dead body was a sign of a curse, how much more would the slow, painful, and shameful death by crucifixion of a living person be a curse? 
especially when the dying one was experiencing anguish beyond power of description. I mean, just think about the, the death and crucifixion of Christ, such a morbid way, a horrible way to die. But even more than that, that the one suffering the curse of God in the flesh didn't deserve it, that he kept the law perfectly, that he was an acceptable sacrifice to God because of his perfection. He lived the perfect life and he bore the sin of an unworthy soul such as I. And so Paul's saying here, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. That believer, Christ became your curse. And if you notice, why would Paul connect the passage in Deuteronomy chapter 21 with, with this passage? I mean, I'm just thinking about it. That Paul, he, he's saying here, he's connecting the idea of, of Christ becoming a curse with someone who committed a heinous crime in the Old Testament. What do you think that says about the nature and the heart of our own sin? That he's connecting it with the capital offense in Deuteronomy chapter 21, that that person committed such an offense so heinous, so egregious, that they were hung upon a tree. What do you think that says about our sin? That Christ bore the weight of that sin. That our wretched sin before God is that heinous. That I should be on that tree, a curse from God. That I should have borne that weight of sin. I should have borne the wrath of God. That my sin was that ugly, that offensive to God, that all should see it and see and see, man, that person is cursed. That's what God thinks of our sin. And then unless you receive God's free gift of grace through faith, my friend, you're still under that curse. Unless you have received the free gift of, of grace through, through faith, that you're still under the curse. No matter how much you try to earn his favor, no matter how much you try to undo what you've done, that you're still under the curse unless you've been declared righteous before God by trusting in his only way, his own son and his work. There's nothing outside of that. That we must couple our, our utter and complete inability to uphold God's perfect standard with the beautiful truth that Christ became accursed. We must couple those together. That, that we are totally unable, totally inept to be perfectly righteous before God in our own doings. But couple that with the magnificent, marvelous grace of God who sent his son to be the curse on our behalf. You cannot meditate on that enough this week. To think about that Christ became a curse for you, believer. That anyone, anyone who has not been justified, turn to his son who was cursed and believe upon him and you can be declared righteous. What a wonderful truth. I just think of the sweet song, oh, ye be glad, be ye glad. Every debt that you've ever had has been paid in full by the grace of the Lord. Be ye glad, be ye glad, be ye glad. What a beautiful truth that he paid it all. That Christ redeemed us. He bought us from the curse of the law by becoming that curse for us. Fourth reason. Fourth reason the law cannot save you is that Christ brings you the blessing. That's Christ who brings you the blessing. This fourth reason explains also how one of the purposes really of Christ's redemption that he, he became a curse. He gave his life. And what happened as a result? Verse 14, in order that, key words, right? So he's showing the purpose of, in order that, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And here's the purpose that Christ redeemed us from the curse, from the curse of the law. Is that so the blessing that the Judaizers, I mean, you think about the, the, the blessing here that the Judaizers were offering to them through circumcision, that same blessing, it's not coming through circumcision, through works of the law, but rather coming through Christ. And I'm just imagining, just put yourself in, in the shoes of the Galatians, right? The, the, being infiltrated by different false teachers and Judaizers who bringing them a false gospel of working your way to pleasing God, bringing that false gospel saying, if you want to, if you want to be converted, you got to look like us. You got to act like us, so to speak. And can you imagine just being a Galatian reading that word from Paul after all this weight of burden, like I need to do this, this. And you see that in order that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles. 
wait a minute. The blessing of Abraham that they're talking to me about, it's coming to me, the Gentiles, through Christ and Christ alone? What a freeing relief that is. A debt you don't have to repay. Like, oh, imagine that just the relief of that burden of reading those words for the first time. That the blessing of Abraham, it comes to the Gentiles through Christ and Christ alone. This is the freeing promise of the gospel that your blessing has already been granted and secured in the one who became a curse in your place. That in Christ, you already have it. You don't have to do anything to earn it. Rather, receive it by faith. That this same blessing was promised to Abraham, the spiritual blessing given to a spiritual seed, I reap it by believing in the one whom he has sent, his son. He elaborates on that same purpose again. So that, the second half of the verse, so that, so so that we would, what? Receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So he redeemed us in order to give us the blessing so that we would have the Spirit by faith. That the indwelling Spirit, the promise given to every believer when they believe in Christ and the saving of their sins, they're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That God lives in that person. He never leaves that person, but he is in that person eternally. That God, the Holy Spirit indwells that person. That we receive that Spirit through faith. That it's the Father who's electing, the Son who redeems, and the Spirit applies that redemption by indwelling the believer. This is the magnificent work of the triune God in salvation. That God the Father calls you out. God the Son pays the price. God the Spirit applies that salvation in dwelling. This is the blessing that this blessing comes in Christ. The law cannot do this. You can't keep the law to earn this. It's only done by faith in Christ, as he so beautifully argues, that not only is it justified by faith, but this law cannot save you. This law is insufficient. To be freed from the law also implies to be freed from living under it. I want you to think about this, that what Christ accomplished in our place, it frees you to be able to live obedient to the law that he requires. I want you to think about this, that we know that we cannot be justified by keeping the law. And we touched on this a little bit last week, but I want to expand on it just a little bit more. That we can't please God by keeping the law. Christ freed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. But when Christ freed us from the law, he freed us to live obediently to the law of Christ. So the reason you can live obediently and pleasing to God even now after being saved You're freed by the work of Christ to be obedient to the law of Christ. That this was written to believers here, that that, that they were to to guard and preserve the gospel, to, to, to stop and prevent against the gospel that teaches Christ plus works. But Paul here, ultimately, by the end of this book in Galatians, which we won't get to see, but we'll see here in chapter five and chapter six, that this freedom of the law being, being freed by the work of Christ, it ultimately produces in a life of obedience and obedient to Christ because of what Christ has done. So when you see in chapter 5, verse 13, when Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So now, brothers and sisters, you're free in Christ, that you are free in him, that you're free to obey, free to please him. And now use your freedom accomplished by Christ to work out the law of Christ. Don't ever strive for obedience in your own flesh. Because then we fall back in the Galatian church. That now I'm saved, now let me just try to do this in my own strength. But realize your only ability to please God is to live by faith. Believing the promises that God has promised for you in his precious word. That the reason you can walk by the spirit is because Christ accomplished that ability for you to do so. So now walk in that truth. Have his word in your heart. Walk by the promises of God, that you have been crucified with God. Your deeds, your flesh have been crucified with Christ. It has no, no, no longer any power over you, that there is no sin, no temptation, no anything that has power over you. Why? Not because you're so strong because you believe about Christ, but because Christ himself accomplished it. And because that is true, walk in that truth. 
that walk by the Spirit means walk by the promises of God. That we can't live a life pleasing to God independent of his promises. That we need his word. Walk by the Spirit. That this, these truths of justification are incomplete if they don't work out in your sanctification. If they don't work out in your daily life. That to live by faith means you're living by the promises of God. And what does that mean about your current struggles, your current circumstances? What does the Bible say about those truths, about those circumstances? What truth needs to be applied in those circumstances in your life? What truth are you not believing by faith? You know God is present, but yet we doubt his sufficiency. I know God is powerful, but I doubt his ability to sustain me through trial. I know these things about God, and yet... I don't live it out. But rather, if this is true, if your justification is true, walk in these truths. Cling to truths. Live by faith. Let this faith that saved you work itself out in obedience and faithfulness. That this is the truth that has been granted to us and promised to us. That we can't keep the law to be justified. The heart of the one who, who seeks to be justified and longs to be obedient to the law and, and longs to be uh, pleasing to God in his sight by our own works will ultimately be disappointed and ultimately be condemned and cursed because our works mean nothing. But for the believer, the one who's been justified by faith, the one who's trusting in the work of Christ, believer, God's word is your delight and your only delight and your only joy, your only treasure. In his truth, it reveals the majesty, the perfection, the righteousness of God. His word cuts and it prods our heart as we behold the perfections of the God whom we seek to serve and to love. And it also highlights our imperfections. But let his work, his supreme work that he accomplished on the cross, be applied to our life as we walk in it. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith and in faith in the one who became accursed for us. Pray with me. Father, so many truths here that we can chew on. And yet, God, we constantly need to be reminded of the truth that we have. We constantly need to be reminded of who we are in Christ. That so often we're prone to fall astray. So often we're prone to wander. But Lord, I rejoice in the truths you read about this morning, that Christ will hold us fast. Christ will sustain us. Christ will keep us. That the one who secured and accomplished our hope will preserve it to the end. Father, help us to be faithful in these things to, as we seek to live the Christian life. God, I pray as you called us to do, to work out our salvation with work, with fear and trembling. I pray we would be zealous to pursue these things in faith, that we would be zealous to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing the God who saved us. So Lord, make this true in our own heart this morning. And may we live this out for your glory alone in Christ's name. Amen.